0: Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, joined, as usual, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? But also in the studio, we have special guests. We have Jack Schramm from the bar. Say hello, Jack. Hi, Dave. How you doing? We have Jackie Molecules in the engineering booth. Yep. And... Harold McGee, gee, 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 here from California. What's up? Call your questions two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. you doing Harold?
2: Very well, thanks, Dave.
1: Nice. And Jack, how'd you survive? Jack was at the uh, Jack did the uh, cocktail apprentice program. Jack, not I'm just gonna call really you really Molecules.
0: Confusing. Yeah, I'll be Molecules today. Molecules,
1: yeah. Or Jackie, yeah, Jackie Molecule. So Jack Schramm, bartender at Booker and Dax, intrepid bartender at Booker and Dax, uh, was just part of the cocktail apprentice program at Tales of the Cocktail. uh, Just got back. Did you survive?
0: Just barely, Dave.
1: Yeah, it's a they're a that's a hard living group of folk. It
0: certainly is. Yeah, but it was it was a lot of fun. I learned such an incredible amount. It was a fantastic experience.
1: Nice, mm-hmm. nice. Uh, all right, so Harold, uh, you got you got anything to uh, anything to report? What brings you to our fine fine city?
2: Uh, I came to visit the CIA up in Hyde Park. Uh, they have a new culinary science program, so I was uh, finding out about that. And then came down to the city to catch up on what's happening here.
1: Now, culinary science as opposed to food science is more like your alley, the study of delicious...
2: Uh, yeah, the, the study of what cooks do to make food for people rather than what uh, uh, industrial factories do to make food for people. Ah, I see. I see. Industrial industrial factories.
1: All right, so uh, let's get to some uh, questions. Let's see what we have here. Stas, did we answer the question on root beer? Does anyone remember whether I answered the question on root beer?
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, man.
1: All right uh rob Handel see i never know whether i've answered it and it's here and i have got to answer it again anyway so i'm sorry if i already it. answered it um rob Handel wrote in and he said i was the guy that called today about running root beer in a draft system of course that was like a month ago that he actually called because i'm so behind uh but i had bad cell service and got cut off i'm aware that the, uh, the persistence of root beer flavor and i'm willing to dedicate a corny keg or two as well as the lines to the cause i've had a couple of main concerns other than that the recipe i developed has about 20 herbs roots and spices and generates a lot of sediment what's the best way to clarify this so i won't have major foaming issues i'm also working with space constraints would i be able to safely sanitize the corny keg pour in the boiling soda base then seal it and keep it at room temperature Would i need to uh it to ensure it is safe i would run it through a cold plate to chill and ensure carbonation any other concerns i should be aware about when setting up the system i'm looking to have root beer and sparkling water on tap then rotating a seasonal soda on the third line um you are talking about doing a hot fill, uh, and uh, not to be confused with Nastasia's friend fill, right? Uh, and uh, I think that's going to work fine. You see any problems with that? Like, as long as the yeast is killed, uh, the CO2 line's not going to bring yeast into it. As long as you get no back contamination or backflow, you shouldn't have any problem with the hot fill. Just wait for it to be super cold before you carbonate it. Yeah? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone?
2: You know that stuff.
1: Uh, 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 you want to – I'll give you a couple words of advice since that's what you're here, right? Uh, boil the lids. Make sure everything that touches the inside, including the lids, is uh, is boiled pour it in boiling, cap it immediately, flip it upside down, and let it boil the top of the thing before it goes. And then if uh, possible, blow a little bit of stuff through the tubes to make sure the tubes are sanitized while the stuff is still hot to kill everything. Ain't nothing that kills you going to grow in the soda. What's going to happen is you're going to get yeasts and other sorts of kind of things that just make it either uh, either reduce its residual sugar, increase its alcohol content, or make it nasty, right?
2: Yeah, I mean fun- funky, fruity, nasty—not not horrific, but yeah, not what you want.
1: Yeah, root beer ain't your funky, fruity, nasty kind of kind of beverage.
2: Yeah,
0: although yeah. funky,
1: fruity, nasty—can you make a cocktail called funky, fruity, nasty? <laughs> Absolutely,
0: Dave. I was already thinking
1: about it. <laughs> All right, nice. Uh, Got a yeah. caller whenever you're ready. All right, so I'll finish this and we'll get to caller. So uh, uh, on the foaming, um, okay, I'm just gonna put this out here. You are, as we used to say in the trade, S O L, like uh, like. Th- First of all, anything out of a keg like that, you're going to have more foaming than you would uh, out of like a bottle service, but also... All, all those barks, not only – you have to get it 100% clear, which you could totally – clear meaning no particles, which you could do through a number of filtration methods or even probably with uh, a clarification step if you had to. But that's not going to get rid of the kind of surface-active crap that's in barks uh, and roots that causes things to kind of foam up on you. So it's like it's just you an inherently foamy kind of situation. The good news is is that root beer is a relatively low-carbonation, foamy – product anyway. That's why it's root beer and not root IPA. <laughs> y- y- you know what I mean? Yeah. No? Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> all right, caller, you were on the air.
0: Hey, um, I heard last week that Harold McGee might be on, and I had a question that I thought he could perhaps answer. Um, I've been uh, steering a lot of my food lately with the all ah. and I was reading on, on food and cooking, um, specifically the section on, uh, I think it's heterocyclic amines. That are created during the searing process or high temperature cooking you should win a prize that's the first time that's been ever worse i've used here go ahead
1: you're the first time first person has ever mentioned heterocyclic amines on the show and so i believe you deserve a prize go ahead
0: (laughs) okay um so i was just wondering is it smart like from a health standpoint to pair seared foods with something that has antioxidants like a drink or something um or is it just it's it's not that um that important
2: Ah, so um, I would say, I mean, of course, there really isn't good scientific information about a question like that. We can only sort of extrapolate from the knowledge that hydro- heterocyclic amines are formed in high temperature processing of foods, and they seem not to be good for us. And so you probably want to minim- minimize intake. And then also, um, I'm not sure that uh, antioxidants per se are going to be helpful because. Um, you know these toxins are toxic not by oxidizing things; it's by reacting with uh, with important molecules like DNA and RNA. Uh, but I think what it does make sense to do is to eat that food with, uh, as you said, a, a, a good drink with all kinds of complicated other uh, materials in it, but also vegetables and fruits, which have all kinds of stuff that we really don't know about, but that is probably going to be there. If not to counteract the activity of something like heterocyclic amines, then at least dilute them so that they're less likely to cause problems. So I think, uh, bottom line, just having uh, a, a meal with lots of different uh, elements to it, along with your wonderfully seared food, is the is the way to go.
1: Yeah, uh, my favorite uh, would be a glass of uh, a nice glass of red wine.
2: Yeah, yeah, to yeah. start. Yeah. Yeah, yep.
1: Which uh, it may or may not do wonders for your heart, but it does wonders for your soul.
2: <laughs> yes. Right? Right. <laughs> all right.
1: Well, thanks so much for calling in. Yeah, oh. thank you. All right. All right. Bye. Uh, all right. So here's a, uh, we didn't answer the agar noodle question, yeah? I might as well get to it. Yeah. Remember the old agar noodles that people used to make, like Johnny used to make them and uh, Farron made them and they would get keep the agar kind of in a warm state and then put it through a tube in an ice bath. Remember mm-hmm. that? Okay. Yeah. So I think someone's writing about that, but let's find out. I didn't even look it up because I was like, I got noodles. I don't need to research that. I can do that in my sleep. I had a question about a recipe I'm piecing together. I wanted to make spaghetti and red sauce. By the way, spaghetti. I had a, well, no, I'm not, no more Vajetti comments today, although I had some people write me in. Um, I wanted to make a spaghetti. and Have you used a Vajetti? No. no. No? No. Jack, do you own a Vajetti?
0: I do not own a Vigetti. I do not own a Vigetti. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I use one. I don't own it. Uh, no, it's like, um, you know what it is, though, right? No, I don't. Oh! 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 It's time for the talk. All right, I said I wouldn't do it, but what happened? Okay, so like you know the you know the uh, like the the Ben Rinner things that like you can take a potato and turn it into like a sure. long strip, or it can make shreds. Yep. So if you sh- if you were to take that, and make it less expensive, shape it like a like an oversized pencil sharpener that could um. let's say take a cucumber sized thing or even maybe even a daikon so uh and you could twist it and it turns said uh stick shaped uh yeah uh item veg into uh strips and so someone was like those are kind of like noodles maybe i could use it like a noodle and so instead of just calling them kind of threads or filaments decided to say they are spaghetti which in fact they're not the same shape as spaghetti spaghetti is what shape does what shape is spaghetti no, no, what shape is the cross section? Oh, a
0: circle.
1: Yeah, it's round. It's round. Does the Vegetti produce round things? So does it produce spaghetti? No. Could it ever produce spaghetti? No. Because spaghetti is not merely pasta in a long form, people. Spaghetti has a freaking cross section. But someone in there, in their infinite wisdom, Decided that this is just like a spaghetti. Maybe they're thinking of spaghetti squash, which, by the way, I think used as a spaghetti – whatever. I'm not going to get into it because everyone here likes spaghetti squash. I'm surrounded by spaghetti squash lovers. But uh, they decided they were going to call it a Vigetti. <laughs> a vegetti. <laughs> and the the non-brand name of Vajetti is Spiralizer. And so people have written – a lot of people actually, as it turns out, have written cookbooks on – Spiralizing vegetables Because the Vegetti people Won't let you, let them use their name Because they don't want to we, Look, we at Vajetti Don't want to become The Kleenex of spiralizers All right? You know what I mean? That's basically <laughs> what's happening So you've, you've never used one you Any thoughts? <laughs> I need to go out and get one Wow I'm sure Someone listening to this Would be more than happy To send <laughs> a Vegetti. You know, are they a sponsor her- yet? B-
0: what's going on? Here?
1: I, I don't know, man I don't know I don't know
0: Get they would... in touch with us.
1: Yeah. Anyways, I had a question about a recipe I'm piecing together. I wanted to make spaghetti and red sauce with the flavors of a tequila sunrise. Jack, give us his specs for a tequila sunrise.
0: Tequila sunrise, uh, two ounces, Repo. I don't know, Dave. We don't do sunrises at the bar. Yeah, O-J, what is it? OJ, yeah. yeah, right? Yeah. But do you have to keep it all layered so that it looks like –
1: is it sunrise or sunset? Sunrise? Sunrise, yeah, yeah. yeah See, yeah. it should really be like – if it's sunrise, it should really be like Creme vet because sunrises are not they're like bluish gray
0: sunrise I don't think that would be uh, incredibly delicious though with the cremey vet
1: I think I detest it Uh, in general I think it's a uh, I mean like I'm sure somebody likes it Uh, not me like do you like creme vet?
0: not especially Harold
1: do you you like it? nope do you like fruity
2: pebbles? Fruity Pebbles.
1: The, oh, you don't know Fruity Pebbles? I don't. Oh, it's, no. it's the Fred Flintstone branded uh, cereal that looks like aquarium rocks, like multicolored aquarium <laughs> rocks. Anyways, like, uh, it tastes just like that, but somehow Fruity Pebbles at least has crunch. Anyway, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, okay. So I think it's, they should call it a, a tequila sunset. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Okay. Uh, how do you think the alcohol and the acidity of the OJ would affect the amount of agar you would need to add to the liquids? Ah uh, look as long as you're not going above like nyang, nyang, nyang like fifteen twenty percent uh, ABV I don't it, you might need to add a little bit of extra agar maybe but not but i mean technically you should technically you wouldn't because whatever it doesn't matter but i I wouldn't worry about it too much because i wouldn't put the alcohol level that high anyway one thing i will say is uh you cannot have something that's at high alcohol and uh boil uh and sufficiently hydrate the agar so you will need to hydrate the agar in the juice slash whatever water base um start it cold boil it let it simmer for a while for a couple of minutes then you're going to want to uh Temper the alcohol into that mix, not the other way around, because you don't want to get pre gelation. Uh, and then you want to keep it warm enough to put it through whatever EC or whatever it is you're using to make the noodles. The noodles. Uh, I was also wondering how you think the texture would come out. The agar noodles, frankly, they're a little brittle and they break kind of kind of easy. So. Um, you know, you might want to switch uh, or a- add, uh, like, a softener, like a texturizer to it. Like, it's not specifically something that people use for it, but, like, a LBG or any sort of, like, a softening thing is going to make it a little more spaghetti-like. Yeah. Plus, also, you never make spaghetti with this either because the noodles are always a bigger thing. They're more like udon, right? You know what I'm talking yeah. about. These, like, these agar noodle things are a little more like udon. Yeah. But I would follow, uh, you know, any of the – Martin Larish still puts out the uh, text – what does he call that thing? The textures, what do you call that thing? It's like a compilation of every chef's recipes yeah. on hydrocolloids. He yeah. still puts it out. Just check and see what kind of ag on noodles. Learn that one and see see what happens. All right. J- Justin wrote in on, from Palm Springs on an anti griddle. Hello, Dave Nastasia. Uh, Nastasia, Nastasia, do you believe that? How many years have I worked with you, Stas?
0: Seven.
1: Can't get your name right. <laughs> All these years later. Nastasia. Uh, Jack and whatever interlopers... Oh, what what up? Harold McGee is now an interloper. <laughs> Jack, you count because it's double Jack. He didn't yeah, say fair. Jackie Molecules in here, he yep. said Jack. Uh, as I was searching the interweb uh, for instructions on building my own anti-griddle somewhat unsuccessfully. Uh, for those of you that... Uh, does he still make them? Does Philip Preston still make the anti-griddles? I don't know. I haven't seen him in a long time. Grant Akitz, who you know, from Alinea uh, and Aviary and Next, who, by the way, was at Tales of the Cocktail.
0: And paired a cocktail with seared beef.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's for, good. Yeah. Yes, not for
1: its antioxidant properties, I, I assume. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he bought the giant porthole, which holds like something like, you know, it's like a frat party should get that thing. It was like, how many gallons did he say it held?
0: I want to say he said 70 liters. But something, I, yeah. yeah something ridiculous. A
1: lot, lot of cocktail.
0: lot of cocktail. A lot of cocktail.
1: Big, big freaking, uh, what's it called? Porthole. Yeah, uh, and he was blowing his, the caramel balloons and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. fun. Do you think he had a good time? I don't know. Oh yeah. Did you see him at any of the parties afterwards? No. No. Mm, me neither. I, I didn't yeah. really go though. I was like I was like holed up in the in a closet as I as I want to be. Uh, anyways, so uh, Philip Preston made this thing uh, anti griddle for. Uh, Um, Alinea way back in the day. I don't know what he made it for. My impression was he made it for Alinea when they were opening um, because I guess they didn't have LN at the time, liquid nitrogen or something, and they wanted a, a chilling technique because, remember, at that time, which was at 05... Alinea? Some, somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting period in time in the U.S. because uh, the the guys at, in uh, Spain were already like you know uh, y- you know using liquid nitrogen like it like it had no cost and like you know Ferran had like you know five doers of it in you know and like you know uh, Danny Garcia was like you know just like you know whatever just turn on the tap and walk away from it like you know like <laughs> California five years ago with water before you guys went totally <laughs> uh, totally dry-ons, but. um So anyway, I think he wanted a way to replicate some of those effects without having to have liquid nitrogen. So the anti-griddle is, in effect, a flat plate that chills things down. And the big thing that uh, Grant used to do is he used to make, like, creme anglaise, pour it on the thing, stick a stick into it, and make little creme anglaise lollipops. Lollipops. Um, Anyways. uh, Wow, that was a long tangent. I haven't even finished the question yet. I came across a forum in which someone was discussing creating a high-pressure environment. So the question's not even about the uh, anti-griddle. Mm, interesting. Uh, I came across a forum in which someone was discussing creating a high-pressure environment inside a pressure cooker by putting dry ice inside. This got me wondering if that technique would work for rapid infusion in the same way as an EC canister but on a larger scale. I've heard most of your rants and raves concerning the pressure cooker, so you're the obvious one to come ask. Assuming I haven't modified anything on my cooker, is this safe to try? Is it safe to try? Uh, is it safe? Well... Uh, Whether or not it's safe to try depends on how fast your pressure cooker can eject the excess pressure and how much CO2 you put in, how much dry ice you put into it. I'm going to go ahead and say no. Plus also you can't modify a pressure cooker to withstand much more than about 20 PSI because the side gaskets will blow out. There's, There's three or four safety features on every pressure cooker. And and I wouldn't You're not going to get it above about 20 PSI And you're pulling uh, I'd have to go back and look at my charts In liquid intelligence to find out But in an an EC You're getting like 60, 70, 80 PSI What you want to do is get a corny keg Get a corny keg, and uh, you, know, you can use CO2. You just have to wait for it to flash off, but it'll work you know, much like nitrous, but you have to wait for it to flash off so it doesn't have any pétillons left when it's done. Uh, but I would go corny keg, and then you could do five gallons at a time, and you can get a corny keg still for you know, not very much. What do, you, what do you guys think? Modify the pressure cooker? No, right?
2: No, I'd, I'd be worried about uh, you know, condensation freezing up in the, in the valve yeah, yeah. and just kind of blocking it. So, you, so I, I wouldn't mess with
1: it. You ever have one of the other safety features? I've had them all fail on me. I've had, I've had every safety feature uh, vent one way or the other uh-huh. on more than one occasion. You know what it's not? Eh, pleasant. <laughs> not, not pleasant.
0: Yeah, Dave, Anytime you're saying something is potentially unsafe and you're saying it, I would highly recommend you do not do that thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's no winks and nods here. It's just not a good idea. And, I, look, I'd be willing to figure out a way that I thought it would be safe, Except for the fact that I also don't think it'll be effective,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because yeah. you're not going to be able to get the pressure high enough. Yeah. 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 Anyway.
0: Hey, Dave. Yes. I had a weird question email to Heritage just now from oh, yeah. Greg in Queens, who says Harold sounds like the nicest guy on the planet, but does he have a freaky side?
1: Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Should I let Nastasia answer that? No. Maybe.
1: <laughs> no. What, right. well, Harold? So why don't you describe to us uh, your uh, your your freakier side?
2: Uh. No, I'm-, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to, Dave. <laughs>
0: Dave, just have Harold come to Tales with <laughs> you next year. Harold's and, been uh, to
1: Tales. Yeah. He's been to
0: Tales. Hey, did you see the freaky side? That's the place it comes out.
1: Oh, oh, no, well, you know.
2: No, you didn't, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: you know, yeah, well, you know, we got to take you to Vegas, then I'll know. Then stays in Vegas. <laughs> you know, I've never been to Vegas.
2: You haven't? Nope.
1: Huh. Mm. Mm. Uh, wow that's a kind of a crazy question. I
2: it think is. It,
1: yeah. Who
0: did it say who was? At uh, Greg in Queens. Greg. Oh, there you go, Greg.
1: <laughs> there you go, Greg. So take it take it as uh, take it however you want, but you're not gonna get anything out of him on uh, on the air. That's for sure. But in fact, I will say this, and Stas, you can back me up on this. He is in fact the super nice fellow that you hear here on the radio. Like that's like legitimately that's legitimately the, yes. uh, the the herald that you will yep. that you will get if you meet him in the real life. Oh, uh, Justin, last thing you said in a P.S. because Stas and I need to get off our butts uh, is your next book should be called "Enemies of Quality." We're still working on a T-shirt. You know about the enemies of quality? No. It's uh it, well, an enemy of quality is someone who does things to hurt the product, like like food or beverage, uh-huh. in a way that's just you know like. Not so much purposeful, but just neglectful. Most enemies of quality are just neglectful.
2: Because they're not looking out after quality. I mean, that's... Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like like imagine buying a loaf of uh, crusty bread and then putting it in the fridge.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. With that person... Or a plastic bag.
1: Oh well yeah cuz it uh, cuz of the uh, well do you what do you like these modified plastic bags that allow for venting or are you still ha- what about right after baking you put it in a plastic bag devil satan
2: yes no
1: yeah yeah horrible
2: perfect yes terrible
1: but like what about do you do you like these bags with the venting things or no
2: um not really No, no
1: first of all Harold lives in like one of the in like one of the greatest places for just keeping things on the
2: counter like in San Francisco you can just keep anything just like on the counter right well you can but I mean the I mean it's not as humid there as it is here right now but it is like 50-60% which means that the loaf of bread is going to get uh the, the crust is going to suffer with time. But there's nothing you can do about that uh really except just keep keep the bread as optimally as possible for the whole loaf and then crisp it up in the oven. Are you also suggesting that people eat
1: their bread in a timely fashion?
2: Uh that that is advisable too. Although these days, when people make these gigantic, you know, like four-pound loaves, it's a little hard to do that. But
1: yeah, but uh, you know, that's why I like it when people sell quarters.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, like, what are your thoughts on bread boxes?
3: Um,
2: I, I, in my experience, they're great for if you if you have a kitchen where there's a lot of traffic in and out, it, it's nice to kind of keep it uh, out of the way. Um, but I like to just take a, a paper bag, cut cut one part of the loaf, put that face down on a cutting board, and then just kind of put a bag, paper bag, loosely over the top. And uh, it doesn't look as nice as a bread box, but I think it does about the same. The, that's the Harold McGee bread box right there.
1: You want to take a commercial break and come right back? Jack- is that to me? Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Jackie Molecule is coming right back with Cooking Issues.
3: Hello out there, it's Steve Jenkins, I'm with Fairway Markets, White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's heritage turkey, Japanese steaks, Berkshire pork, or Navajo churro lamb chops, is the righteous kind. From healthy animals, of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts, it's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at heritagefoodsusa.com for more information.
1: You gotta slit their throats to save them. Well, it's true. <laughs> and oh welcome back to Cooking Issues with Harold McGee. Harold wants to say churro. Harold, you give me some churro? Churro. Nice. Ooh, that was nice. good. Right? McKay, maybe you can do a, would you be willing to do like a, uh, hey Jack, you want to get okay, Harold McGee, maybe you can say something nice about the radio station.
0: Maybe What's, he
1: would, I don't know. Maybe he would. I'm kind of calling him out, I didn't ask in advance whether he'd be willing to.
0: Maybe he'd say something nice about us, I don't know. I don't know. Sure,
2: sure. Give me a script.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I have nothing that I actually want to say that's nice. But if you have something nice to say, I'll read it. I don't know what you need. Oh, that's I true. I want to help out. All right, nice. All right, Sam writes in, Hi, guys. I'm trying to create a mother of vinegar just for kicks. When you say it, it's like mother of all vinegars. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah, vinegar mother. Uh, what factors affect the size, speed, and appearance of the mother's formation? By the way, uh, I saw on a video, and this is my new thing. This is amazing. For those of you that aren't allowed to curse, like let's say you're around small children or in a place, this guy had an explosion happen right next to him in a video you know the kind of videos i watch and he goes mother father i was like genius how have i not thought of that before have you used that before guys
0: i think i've used it a couple times but- mother yeah. father <laughs>
1: it's like i can use that in front of the kids which is genius anyway i don't know what. It made. oh yeah vinegar mother anyway uh wine type vinegar type vinegar starter light heat etc in particular will a mother be able to form in a small glass
2: vial harold Small glass vial isn't the the ideal environment because uh, vinegar mothers develop at the at the vinegar air interface, and if there isn't a lot of space up there, if, if there isn't a lot of surface area, it's going to take a lot longer. So I would suggest a a broader necked vessel of some kind. Yeah, and, and also temp- temperature is pretty important because uh, vinegar uh acetobacteria, kind of enjoy a a moderate temperature, not too cool, not too warm, like uh, 20 Celsius, 70 or so uh, Fahrenheit. So if you can keep it in a place like that, uh, that helps. And
1: uh, you want to cheesecloth the top of it so that you don't get the vinegar, excuse me, vinegar flies. And uh, what else? Uh, You got to get the alcohol content right.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh, And I would, uh, something I didn't get a chance to look into, but my bet is that uh, white wine or something like that would be, would work faster than red because, you know, red wine has all those phenolics. They're probably to some extent uh, antibacterial and you might have to overcome that.
1: I'm sure someone's done the study, right? Yeah. Have you ever yeah. had the people who, like, we had, we made a kombucha, and the kombuchas, this one's got a lot of alcohol in it because of the way we made it. And you taste it, and you're like, you have no alcohol because it's all turned to vinegar. it's like been like acetobacter <laughs> hit like a baseball bat. Yeah. You ever had that happen?
2: Uh, no, no, but I can imagine it. Yes.
1: Well, I don't have to imagine it because it happened to me. <laughs> I was like, listen, if you li- I like vinegar beverages, so I'm cool with it. It tasted like, you know, do you like heavy vinegar beers? Do you like, like, Rodenbach, Grand Cru, and all that stuff? Yeah. Can you pound a whole hyper vinegar one? I like the medium grade, like medium amounts of vinegar, like Roden Rodenbach style, but not the straight vinegar suck ones. I don't know.
2: Yeah, it depends on how much. I mean, a little bit, uh, like a half. Oh, yeah. In in, in the right circumstances is nice, yeah. but yeah, not Stas, You, yeah. You like the uh, drinking vinegars,
1: like uh, yeah, like uh, Andy Ricker and his nice, yeah, I like those too. Me too. Yeah, Jack, nice, Jackie molecules. That's right. Jackie.
0: Both uh, Jacks agree, though. Delicious. Yeah, nice. Mm. All right.
1: Uh, what about Ralph beer? I'm not a fan.
0: Uh, you know, I no, I do like it.
1: smoke you like yeah. smoky beer? You can drink yeah. a whole one.
0: No, but at, at uh, Samia in Williamsburg, they did. Uh, a weird smoked onion. Dude, yes, I had the same one. So good with the smoked beer. Delicious. Yep. Incredible. Yeah. What?
1: Why do? you First of all, why do you need smoke on smoke? What's the smoke on smoke? Did they serve it with a smoked cheese and then you smoke a cigar with it? <laughs> <laughs> like, like. I wish so much smoke.
0: It, it worked in in the circumstance. You you, you got to try it, Dave. You got to get over there. It's good. I, yeah, all it right.
1: Really did yeah? Well, you know, Nastasia. Little known fact: Nastasia ate. You ready for this, Jack? Yep. E. Nastasia ate in Queens over the weekend. What? Queens <laughs> Wow I was like Oh my god She like Died or something Someone said There was an imposter I, She was like Yeah I was uh, over Eating in Jackson Heights I was like Damn
0: Did a helicopter Bring her there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's like You know because To get Nastasia To cross the river Other than for this show is I like
0: prefer Queens To Brooklyn I would go to Queens Faster than Brooklyn You gotta say that
1: Closer to the microphone So everyone I, here I in Brooklyn to, Can hear you
0: I go to Queens I, Queens is fine Brooklyn I hate Wow. <laughs> there it is. Wow.
1: <laughs> oh, I love the molecules, man. Okay. By the way, Harold McGee, I don't think, has heard the Jackie Molecules ringtone. Can you bust it? Oh, yeah. Give me a minute. All right. Tell me when you're ready. Yeah. And I'll, uh, I'll hit, I'll hit with some uh, with some questions here. Uh, Pedro, how do you think you pronounce P-A-I-V-A? Portuguese. Paiva? Paiva. Paiva? Yeah. Pedro Paiva. Good afternoon, Cooking Issues team. My name is Pedro from Lisbon, Portugal. I've never been. I'd like to go, though. I really like Portuguese cheese. Mm -hmm. You like Portuguese cheese? I do. Do And I've never been either. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, if you're out there, Portugal, if you're out there, let me hear you dance. Uh, Harold McGee would like to go to Portugal. (laughs) One of you needs to reach into your wallet and, like, figure out some sort of conference that you're going to fly him over there so he can hang out and eat all of your delicious thistle-renated cheese and pound a whole boatload of port. And if you need some chump named Dave to come along, too, well, you know, hey, that's, you know, all the better. You know what I mean? Jack, Jack the bartender, you like some port, right?
0: I certainly do. I yeah? think we should start putting it in some cocktails.
1: Well, uh, D got the white, the white port. Did yeah, the any white of that port. work?
0: We, we're we still working on it. It's getting there. yeah. Carbo application is is looking good.
1: Yeah, carb carb application. Yeah. We have a gin and tonic question later if we get to it. So anyway, okay. Uh, In fact, it's this one. Uh, And I would like to submit a question about gin and tonic. Here we go. You ready? Jack of the bar. You will also win on this one since you do this. Every dang day. Uh, well, except for the past week when yeah. you were at Tales of the Cocktail. Uh, gin is now a big trend in Portugal and it is really easy to buy uh, a decent gin and a decent tonic. Most people claim to know how to serve the best GNT, and that for each gin there is a perfect serve. Hmm. Well, that's, a very, that's kind of a – it's more of the Spanish yeah. trend, right? The mm-hmm. big goblet style. Do you like the big goblet style?
0: I'm not a huge gin and tonic drinker, but I mean, I enjoy pretty much any G&T if it's. I'm just sipping on it casually. So
1: mm, I never casually. Right. I never. I'm never casually sipping. <laughs> However. In the YouTube clip, the gin and tonic, Dave Arnold's Cocktail University. The gin served is totally different from the one served in the other side of the Atlantic st- uh, starting in the glass. No one uses flutes. Ours are closer to a small fish tank for a goldfish. Yeah, I know it. I don't understand that. It's because um, carbonation must not be as important over there. Normally, we first put and swirl the ice in a glass to cool it. Then we flavor it with uh, botanics, juniper, zest of orange, lemon, or even strawberries. Then pour the gin and finally the tonic carefully to keep the gas of the tonic, which you can't if there's ice in a big bo- fish bowl. Let me tell you- something about let me tell you a little something about about bubbles my friend uh like the vast majority of bubbles are lost at the surface of the glass right at the surface so what a flute does for you it actually doesn't do a good job of uh, presenting the volatiles to your nose which is why real champagne freaks like uh like our good friend nastassi the hammer lopez prefer to drink their champizzle out of a white wine glass am i right yes Yeah, because the aroma is better and, in fact, a lot of people, a lot of cognoscenti like their champagnes uh, too warm for my taste and wide open because they actually want to dumb the bubbles down because it lets them taste the wine
2: more. What what about you? For me, it depends a lot on the champagne. I I just had this wonderful experience of a a 25-year-old Veuve Clicquot served from a humongous a uh, bottle; it had no bubbles left whatsoever, but it was delicious and like no other champagne I'd, I'd ever had. But if it's a you know a young one and and really bubbly and really sparkly, um, I I actually like flutes. Yeah. I mean because you can enjoy the the visual spectacle as well as the the taste and smell and 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 spurts.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great. You know, Liger Belair, the champagne scientist from Malay... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who lives in Haas. why How do you why do you pronounce that town that way? <laughs> as we would say, Reims uh, But it's um, uh, he did the studies on the traditional coupes, which we use for cocktails mm-hmm. and uh, flutes. And his, I believe, said maybe we should do white wine glasses as a good compromise. You read those mm-hmm. studies?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah he's Mister Champagne. Or, what a job! Or Doctor Champagne. So let
1: me ask you this: On that twenty-five-year-old uh, Vouvray, uh, uh, how was the acidity?
2: Uh, It was bracing. It was very high. That's part of what made it so wonderful, because otherwise it was kind of caramelly, bready, you know, all those. uh, It it was rich, but also had a nice backbone.
1: How far had the, uh, in the absence of massive amounts of CO2, how far had the yeasty, bready gone to oxidized and sherry-like?
2: uh, it wasn't sherry light. It was. It was just really rich. It was dark too. And when I first saw it, I thought, mm, this, "This doesn't look good." But but it was beautiful. Nice. Yeah. Who bought it? Uh, the owner of the restaurant, uh, who which was celebrating its twenty fifth anniversary, bought it when the restaurant opened for this occasion. Huh. Foresight, Jack. There
1: it is. Foresight. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, are uh, closer to a small fish tank for a goldfish. Normally, we, oh, I we already did this. Uh, the, uh, then pouring the gin and tonic and finally uh, the tonic to keep the gas in the tonic. In the picture attached, which I don't have, is one of the results for the bloom gin. The question is, is it okay to serve it as we do or are we missing something important? Thank you for your time and thank you for the great program, Pedro. P.S. Uh, as you see... Um, uh, as you see it, what should be the first steps into the sous vide world? Do you recommend an immersion any immersion circulator in particular for sous vide? And as a home cook, what should I pay attention to? Uh, look, they're all they're all going to work. Uh, I'm not sure about in Portugal, like what the like which ones are good for for Europe. They're all they're all they're all they're all going to work. Just get one uh, that, you know, you can afford that you're going to be happy with. I like the professional ones but those are still like 800 bucks. but to me, like, I know I can beat on them pretty hard, but I've had experience with all the lesser priced ones as well, and they're, they're, all, they're all going to work for you. Yeah, there's so much good stuff out there on the internet. I would go to, like, ChefSteps, Steps, uh, you know, one of those places. Uh, I have the rudiments of a low-temperature cooking uh, primer on uh, cooking issues, which is still available. Unfortunately, apparently, you can't buy Cialis on our blog anymore. Paul finally got rid of the Cialis ads. But uh, we, By the way, we never made any money off of that it was just i don't know how they got hijacked uh but just go there now as to the question is are you doing anything wrong uh making your gin and tonics this way well uh oh no i mean if you like them Mm -hmm. then you like them like uh and and it's good i mean like uh I mean, there are certain things that are an abomination, right? So, like, if you were like, what I really want to do is take Pepsi-Cola, which my wife saw someone do this in Shanghai once. If you want to take Pepsi-Cola and mix it with Petrus, regardless of whether the Petrus is fake Petrus or real Petrus, (laughs) like, if you want to take even something that might pass as Petrus, right? So, you know, maybe it's like, you know, you know, not, you know, some sort of closer, like, related, you know, wine. Um, Yeah, that's a mistake, You know, that's just, you're making an error there. You know what I mean? Uh, You know, I would say, even frankly, like, uh, alternating between your glass of Pepsi and Petrus is a horrible mistake. Uh, You know, because the phosphoric acid is just not going to play nicely with the wine, and the flavors of the cola are going to ride right over it, and then it's just not, no. No. Well, I would practice first if you are going to do that with, uh, with some Yellowtail, right, Stas? And Yellowtail and Pepsi, fine. Uh, see whether you can get a decent Yellowtail and Pepsi. And then if you have a billionaire come, then sure, dump the Petrus in. But just don't <laughs> let me see you. But with a gin and tonic, it's a little bit different because the flavors you're going to be working with are all going to be uh, good. I tend to want the purest uh, essence of a gin and tonic possible, which means it's the, I'm going to start with a gin that I like, Tanqueray. And uh, I'm going to use only quinine sulfate and sugar. Uh, and lime juice that you know we clarify because I'm looking for a particular thing—a highly carbonated, extremely crisp, extremely dry, pure gin and tonic with a bunch of uh, no no extraneous crap. That's what I'm interested in. Does that make me right? Yes. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it, no it just uh, it's you know that's the way I want to do it. That's the goal I've set for myself. Uh, but you know we don't all have to have that goal. Right, there's honor in lightly carbonated fish bowls. Actually, I have to say that unless there's so much ice, like uh, any drink that's handed to you, with the exception of uh, an old, an old fashioned, and even in that case, because you can drink an old fashioned quickly if you so desire, like any drink uh, should be small enough that uh, it can be consumed by whoever's consuming it in uh under under five to ten minutes i mean really under two minutes really like right away but in other (laughs) words like i like if the average consumer is taking much longer than like 10 or 15 minutes the drink is sitting there dying i don't care what kind of drink it is it's Mm -hmm. dying if it's a shaken drink it's warming up too much if it's a stirred drink it's warming up too much if it's a stirred drink on a rock it's diluting too much if it's god forbid you know a tall drink in a bunch of ice it's just turned into a watery mess um You know, if if I could change the way the drinking world works in general, and it is going this way in London and other places, it would be smaller drinks drunk uh, more quickly. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Okay. Uh, Let me see. Uh, You know, Stas, we might actually make it through the question today. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Uh, Steve. Actually, we won't. We're not going to make it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Steven from Moscow wrote in. Good to speak to you a few months back at the bar because he came to the bar. Uh, No luck finding the Viziga. Remember Viziga? Visiga the sturgeon spine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever use that, Harold? They used to rip the spine out of sturgeons.
2: Right, yeah, for kulibyak and things like that. No, I've never never played with it myself.
1: Hard to get. Nastasia and I went to uh, what's that? What's that? What's the neighborhood? Uh, like Brighton, right? Brighton Beach, which is like the Russian thing, and she tried to pull her like uh th- but basically they just handed us like a a chunk of frozen sturgeon that had like a little bit of spinal cord in. So we didn't really have enough to like rip out the whole spinal cord and do the uh do this stuff. But I wonder whether there are any other spinal cords. Do you think there's anything special about a sturgeon's spinal cord? Is it the spinal cord itself? I think it is. Anything special about a sturgeon's spinal cord that you know of?
2: No. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's uh, gelatinous. That's really all I know about it.
1: And how fundamentally different is spinal cord material from like brain material? Just shorter length axons in the brain?
2: Uh, you know, uh I should have prepared for this, but my my recollection from uh, Chris Cosentino in San Francisco used to sell a uh, tuna spine, tuna backbone. That there's the spinal cord itself, which is tissue like the brain; it's it's um, you know nerve cells. But then there's this um, uh, uh, gelatinous, cartilaginous material, which is sort of the shock absorber that prevents the uh nervous tissue from suffering and i think it's that that shock tissue that you actually
1: yeah i used to serve that i know yeah. i love that stuff it's yeah. good it's like yeah. kind of like real it needs to be really fresh yes but it's like yes. super kind of clean and sea watery mm-hmm. but you, mm-hmm. but, the, but that's not what the viziga is though i think the viziga is the actual cord no you is think the viziga is the stuff because the viziga right. comes in a long strip
2: right right yeah no that's that's my sense yeah. but but Mm-hmm. Say, How did you like? Chris, what did
1: Chris it? do to it? To the to the,
2: uh, just gave it to you and you kind of broke it open yourself and.
1: Oh, I think we had that together. But he uh, roasted the outside
2: of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I've only ever served it raw. Like so, we would take one spine, clean off the vertebrae, so it was like 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 you know. Wiped clean, like you put it in one of those like uh, flesh eating beetle containers, you know what i 'm talking about, <laughs> and then uh, i, I didn 't do that though please i don 't want to hear about it and then uh, we scooped fresh ones that were like off these kind of the gross meaty carcasses, and then put mm. them on like they were fresh. Remember we did, did that we did that for star chefs Remember that stuff? Yeah.
2: yeah. You no know, Chris roasted it and then uh, kind of sprinkled all kinds of. Uh, well, pepper and then various other herbs and spices on it, so it was really, really flavorful. And yeah, delicious.
1: Yeah, I remember that. Uh, okay, so uh, he was not able to find it, uh, and he says it's effectively unavailable in its dry form and extremely difficult to get fresh, especially because how do you always pro- how do you pronounce you know the, the critical endangered species? Is it CITES, is that how you pronounce it? C I T E S. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you have to you know you don't want to slaughter the last sturgeon. I don't <laughs> think. Probably not here 's my question regarding temperature maintenance we 'll be spending some time this summer with an Italian style because it's not it 's going to be in Moscow, not in Italy, so it can only be italian style, style, st- style. What do you think about Italian style things? she gave you she, you can 't see, but she gave you a <clears throat> on Italian style. she likes Italian you don 't like Italians, you like Italy
0: yeah
1: you like Italy, but not Italians mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Another one of the things <laughs> right up there with biscuits, uh, even though whatever, even though whatever i don't know i 'm not going to get into it. Uh, Italian-style outdoor brick barbecue uh, with something like The Picture Attached, which unfortunately I don't have. Oh, it's going to be in Sardinia. It's going to be in Sardinia. Have you ever been? No. You been? No. You been? No. Want to go? I'd like to go. Yes. Uh, By tradition, I will need to – by tradition. I like this. is a good tradition. I will need to roast a suckling pig or half for sure among many other things. Any thoughts on the cook? For a long cook, how best to regulate the temperature? We'll be in New York City next week. Hope to see you at the bar, but I missed it. Uh, Regards – Uh, Stephen, um, so the classic one that can be roasted whole is the, is the cochinillo style, but they're minuscule pigs. Mm -hmm. Like how much of those things weigh? You ever have one of those?
2: Uh, I've never done one myself, but but yeah, they're, you know, a few pounds. Delicious. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um,
1: I don't know, dude, whether you want to do the, like the super slow roast on it. It's going to be hard to regulate if you don't do it a lot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things where you need to do it a lot. Temperature regulation in one of those big ovens uh, is all about just um, you want to build the temperature up uh, over the course of hours and hours and hours and then wait for it to get down to a point that you're going to be okay. Throw it in and then let it ride down on something like that. You're not going to refire. If it's a big retained heat masonry oven, you're not going to refire during the roast because you'll, you'll nuke off the uh, outside of the skin. I wouldn't I would even maybe – Protect the pig for the first part of the thing in it with something that's going to, you know, like leaves or some crap, um, almost like you were burying it in the ground. All those retained heat things start, you want to start it at like kind of like uh, the maximum and then let it ride down. Would you agree? Yes.
2: yes. Yeah,
1: I don't think you're, you're not going to be maintaining temperature in any active sense inside of a, inside of a retained heat masonry oven. Would you, would you think so, Harold?
2: Yeah, and, and it's difficult if you're not familiar with it, you know, to know how it's going to behave, so yeah I would do a, a couple of
1: firings first, yeah. and like kind of yeah. see how it does but here 's another solution. what you can do is you can if you if you if you could muster it because you can do it in like trash bags, you could do the whole thing uh low temp right and then just throw it in a flaming hot one to crisp up the skin and it 'll be as delicious as it can be those Those of you who have heard me rant before know that I am somewhat suspicious of uh, whole hog or any whole animal cookery because there, it is not possible to uh, cook the tenderloin of a pig – I'll just leave it there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's not possible to cook the tenderloin of a pig and have it not be a, a nasty either pasty or dry – One, it's either going to be pasty – nasty or dry nasty and have the rest of the pig cook properly and so the solution to that unless the pig is extraordinarily young and then it bathes itself in its own kind of fat as it goes and then whatever because also it can cook really quickly but uh, you know barring that uh, you know what the what you have to do is hack up that dry meat and mix it with the good meat so that that's what the barbecue uh, guys like what's his name ed uh, why is his name out of my head the, the big whole hog guy down ed mitchell Ed Mitchell. Uh, he's like, yeah, but I like the little dry chunk. It's like, why, 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 why? What you should do is rip all of the stuff out and cook it the way it wants to be cooked and then somehow reassemble it into a pig and crisp up the skin. Now, that would be like – that would be amazing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. All right, Dave. Oh, my God. We got yep. – we, 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 we... we do have a bonus segment coming up.
1: All right. We, well, okay. So Peggy from Australia – we got within one question, Peggy. Uh, you are the one that we have left, so I'm going to get you and your circulator questions next week on the cooking issues. However, uh, before uh, we sign out and uh, thank uh, Jack Schramm from the bar from Booker and Dax, Nastasia, Jackie Molecules. Oh, you didn't pay Jackie Molecules.
0: Oh yeah, I can do that real, real, real quick. That's it. All right, let's see. Uh, who else do you have to thank? <laughs>
1: but nothing. I'm going to say now. Um, Jackie Molecules. There it is. All right. Uh, So uh, we pre-recorded an extra 15 minutes of Cooking Issues that got to some of the other questions. So if you didn't hear your question and your name's not Peggy, then uh, it means that we don't uh, know about it. We got them Also, stay tuned uh, after this for another 15 minutes of uh, Cooking Issues.
3: Bonus Cooking Issues.
1: And welcome back to the extended 15 minutes or so of Cooking Issues, because we just knew we'd need to spend more time with Harold McGee. Harold, how are you doing?
2: Well, thanks. Great yeah. to be here. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, in actuality, I don't want to lie to you, we're, we're taping this before the initial thing, so we're just starting now, but we figured we'd tack it on at the end. So I'm going to yeah. pretend that Nastasia had to leave for a minute, even though she actually hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Jack, is this the first time I've ever been in, a, in the studio early? Has this ever happened
0: before? 100%. Yes.
1: All right. So I got some questions in uh, that I'd like to get to. Here's one that I think Harold will particularly like. He's done a lot of work in it. Tyler Simons wrote in, Dear Dave, Nastasia, uh, and Jackie Molecules, and Harold in a question mark, because he sent it in back when I said there was only a 50% chance of Harold McGee. Uh, Are there any hard and fast rules for making caramel candies? I'm interested in making dairy-free caramels, and I'm curious if there is simply a fat-sugar ratio that is required or if something more complicated is going on, uh, e.g. protein-stabilized emulsion. How could I make something like an almond milk caramel? Thanks so much. Tyler Simmons from UC Davis. P.S. You've spoiled me. I can't seem to find any other podcasts that are both as entertaining and educational as yours. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, thanks for the kind words. And I know that Harold has done, I don't know if you've done with this kind of caramel. You've done with straight sugar caramelization. You've done a lot of work. You ever worked with this kind yep. of stuff?
2: I have not. I mean, I, I have uh, worked with uh, standard caramel candies. And uh, uh, with this kind of thing, it seems to me that what you do is you go into the kitchen and you give it a shot and you see what happens and you try to adapt. So I, I imagine it would behave very much like a, an ordinary milk emulsion or dairy emulsion, but uh, I'm not sure.
1: Right, well, except for, I mean, again, like, uh, somehow I, I didn't read it thoroughly enough because I was rushing in, and I and I thought we were dealing with more of a straight sugar thing. I don't know. If, you know, sometimes that happens to you. Like, you read something, you're like, I got it, you know, McGee's going to get it. I didn't read it. It was kind of a different kind of candy altogether. My one um, my one thing is, uh, you know, the casein, like, the way it browns, the way it undergoes kind of uh, – You know uh, browning reactions i don't know if you're going to get the same effect
2: oh i bet you won't and in fact uh probably the the protein content of the almond milk is lower than ordinary milk i mean that would be my guess anyway uh but that's why you play with it and if it doesn't work uh using a standard recipe well maybe you start by reducing the almond milk or something like that to 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 get things going and yeah
1: yeah, and I would presume it's, well, it depends on what you use, but I presume it's also uh, higher fat, right? Than regular milk? But uh, uh, not with California almonds. Boom! Boom! <laughs> take that, low fat California almonds. Um, they're not low fat, but they're lower in fat.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, we need to be growing better varieties in California.
1: Yeah, why is that? Did they start growing these? Like, why is it that the standard California almond is an incredibly
2: low? Comparatively low fat uh, almond. Yeah, you know, I don't know the history of that, except that, you know, it's the usual sort of thing probably that, that breeders are looking for disease resistance and yield and not so much flavor. I think that's probably it. Yeah, yeah, as simple as that, huh?
1: Here's another one for you. Uh, We talked a little bit about uh, yesterday night. Uh, Andrew writes in about uh, chickpeas. I love the show. I'm one of those people who went and listened to the entire back catalog after discovering it. That hurts. That's so much. Can you imagine listening to all this? Uh, Despite your warnings along the way that this was crazy. I have two questions regarding rehydrating dried legumes. Uh, Now that I have an electric pressure cooker, yes, I know they're not ideal, but no regrets after picking one up for cheap on Craigslist. Do you ever use the electric ones? No, I haven't. What, what, what kind of pressure
2: cooker do you have? Uh, 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 a not that old Kuhn Raikon.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. work. Yeah, I love them. Yeah. I, I have yeah. mine. In fact, I've welded the handle back onto mine after the handle smashed <laughs> off. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I've lost the parts of the top. I've replaced all the gaskets on it. And it still works. Um, anyway, uh, okay. Uh, first, I'm quite happy with my go-to hummus recipe, uh, but I find the texture to be off when I'm using my rehydrated chickpeas instead of using canned. I've tried a range of cook times, but they transition directly from crunchy with that raw flavor to a mealy, pasty, overdone texture that's still apparent after going into the food processor. I assume commercial canneries rehydrate them too, so I'm wondering what I'm missing. An ancient bag of beans, perhaps? It's with the question, beans... Uh, does the water need some kind of additive, like calcium, in order to retain some texture? Uh, I'd stay away from that, like hardening. The, that. Like, There's been a bunch of studies. Well, I'll let Harrogate get into it. But there's been a bunch of studies on uh, way back in the day, like in the early 1900s, I think, where uh, people were noticing that the canned beans uh, had very uh, different qualities on different parts of the country based on the water that was available in the canning thing. And they w- would run through, and they did a whole series of studies on uh the two you need to worry about are calcium and magnesium calcium and magnesium like you know parts per thousand uh versus uh versus uh hardness in the beans and um you know and then you get a situation where they're uniformly too hard and then there's the intermediate zone where some that presumably are less well soaked are harder than another anyway whatever Uh, let me finish the question (laughs) Yet, yet yet another yet another dave going off on a tangent um Okay, I assume commercial canneries rehydrate them too. That is correct. They do. Uh, So I wonder what I am missing. Uh, Ancient bag of beans. Does the water need some kind of additive like calcium? Uh, Any thoughts on how to recreate canned chickpeas or other beans at home? Uh, Second, when it comes to preparation without the gaseous consequences. And this is why I thought McGee would be uh, ideal on this because uh, for those of you, uh, I'm not going to make him say the story again unless he would like to, in which case he's welcome to, but the entire uh, on food and cooking uh, phenomenon that has, uh, you know, helped fuel so many of us in uh, in our push towards thinking more scientifically about the problems of deliciousness was fueled by the problem of farting uh, with
2: beans. True, it was, it yeah. was indeed.
1: And you can say as much of that about you as you want. But anyway, uh, when it comes to preparation without the gaseous consequences, the internet is filled with anecdotal advice. What's a good evidence-based method to reduce this particular side effect? I'm mainly interested in black beans black-eyed peas, and split peas, if it makes a difference. Thank you so much, and I hope this doesn't contribute too much to more uh, more ketchup shows. Well, in fact, we're handling it in a ketchup segment, so there you have it. Uh, Andrew.
2: <laughs> so what do you think? Ah, so where to begin? Um, maybe with the... Uh I'm I'm a little confused about his question because he said he's bothered by a pasty mealy texture in chickpeas. In chickpeas, in, in chickpeas. yeah. Uh, but then he's also talking about maybe adding calcium for texture when it sounds as though what he actually wants is an absence of texture.
1: Well, I that- you know my impression is that what's happening is is that some some maybe have gone over while others are still hard. So maybe he's thinking the calcium is going to make them equally, but it's just going to make you equally shafted.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So you go the opposite
1: direction if you if you had to yeah yeah and then a hummus who cares anyway you're gonna blend the hell out of it the hard part listen i'm gonna let harold you know do this and but what i'm saying is the hard part is being able to make a decent chickpea that you just eat and if you can make a decent chickpea that you just eat and you like the texture of it when you're eating it then it's gonna make a good hummus
2: yeah yeah
1: right so go, go ahead right yeah
2: so there is the, the ancient bean uh, phenomenon. If beans uh, of any kind sit around for too long, at especially at too high a, a uh, humidity, they end up with this hard-to-cook uh, quality that you just really can't get around. So you want to start with fresh beans, as fresh as possible.
1: Will baking soda fix it or no, not even? Uh,
2: I don't think so, No. Uh, it's just the the cell walls are kind of cemented together much more permanently than they would be otherwise. So my like my grandpa just got more and more ornery as he got older. <laughs> That's right, <Yeah. laughs> ornery beans. Yeah. Uh, so start with as fresh beans as possible, and then uh, soak them, pre-soak them and then uh, cook them long enough to make them soft. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. Check them every once in a while, see where you're getting to the point where the texture is close to the eatable that you just just described, and uh, then go from there. I mean, I think one of the problems if he's doing it
1: in a pressure cooker, first of all, like, uh, look, especially if you have beans of varying ages, right, but they haven't gone all the way to ornery bean syndrome, uh, the kind of longer you can let them soak, mm-hmm. the better off you are because the more they will all equilibrate to an equal pre-cooked moisture, right? The harder you force water into a, be- uh, into a bean or a chickpea that hasn't uh, hydrated, uh, you know, been soaked properly, the more you're going to get uh, an overcooked outside and an undercooked inside, right? I mean, wouldn't you say you also want to, pr- like, uh, avoid violent boiling?
2: Yes, yes. Um, although, if you're going to end up uh, pureeing it anyway, then maybe it, that's not such a, a big deal. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's the it, it, we generally don't realize it, but the step that takes the longest, the process that takes the longest in the cooking of beans isn't heating them up. It's getting the water from the outside to the inside. And so if you take care of that ahead of time, uh, then you eliminate all kinds of problems, including textural problems, because that soaking will leach out some of the the uh, ions that are holding those cell walls together.
1: What are your thoughts on the uh, on the warm water pre soak
2: um, it 's quicker
1: um, uh, what it 's less gentle on the on the bean coats. it doesn 't matter on a chickpea though, like on some beans that lose their coats. Mm -hmm. Like, don't you find that because they they rehydrate so much faster that you get that wrinkly phenomenon and they. uh
2: Yeah, that's true. Uh, they they expand faster than the insides do, and so you end up with that with that wrinkling, which pulls it away from the surface of the bean, and and causes it then later to to fall off or not to look as nice. Right.
1: He's also cooking in a pressure cooker, and so one of the things. Oh, by the way, I mean I assume everyone knows this, but if you want your beans to cook, don't add acid to them at all until they're soft. Right. Okay. Yep. Um, and what about salt in the
2: soak? Uh, salt in the soak, uh, in my experience and from my looking at the literature, it slows the hydration. Uh, but once it's hydrated, the cooking actually goes much quicker because the sodium ions displace calcium in the structure, and that helps loosen things up.
1: So that could perhaps make it more even?
2: Yeah. Yeah, but you have to allow more time because if there's salt in the in the water, then it's going to take a lot longer to penetrate into the bean itself.
1: Now uh, he says he's using a pressure cooker. One thing I would be wary of with a pressure cooker is, um, well, a couple things. Uh, he, he, if you don't know whether it's done, you should wait for it to come down naturally. If you do a flash a flash off on the pressure cooker, it really does. Um, it's the equivalent of of a uh, uniformly boiling throughout the liquid, including the liquid that's inside of the the chick chickpeas. And so I think you're going to get kind of blast apart on the um, on the on the. On the thing, but that so you have to let it come down naturally and then bring it back up so it can it can take more time that way. But you know, after a couple of batches, you should be able to dial in uh, in your time. But the longer you let it soak, um, the less I think you're going to have batch to batch variants unless you get a really set of uh, old um, ordinary beans. There was a study that uh, I forget you were there, and it was uh, the year we were at Madrid fusing together. It was like '05. Or something like mm-hmm. this, oh six, oh five, oh six, something like this. And, um, hey, 06, like January of 06. I think so, yeah. You, but you yeah. were quite sick at the time. Everyone was sick. Everyone had gotten food poisoned <laughs> yes. or some sort of, like, stomach virus. Like, all, the, all these famous chefs, um, had gotten, like, this horrible, like, you know, virus or food poisoning. Like, Thomas Keller was stumbling around on stage and everything. It's kind of a nightmare. Um, but since I wasn't, at the time, invited to any of the fancy stuff, I did not catch any dread diseases, and so I was able to wander around at, you know, at will. But I remember one of the presenters was uh, a Spanish chef, and I looked for the paper in advance this, but I couldn't find it. A Spanish chef who had done some research at a Spanish uh, university about chickpeas and various uh, temperature regimes, both in cooking and in soaking and the textual differences. Do you remember that? No, no. I mean, I couldn't find it. I tried to find it. But, you know, that, you know the, there was a great phenomenon back then in, the, in, in that period of time, especially in Europe. Actually, only in Europe. I mean, recently in the U.S., like there's been some kind of collaborations like that. But there were just all these uh, uh, institutions who were like, yeah, we'll let, you know, real scientists talk to chefs and answer actual evidence-based kind
2: of stuff, you know? Yeah. Does that really yeah. happen anymore? Oh, yeah. a lot of, In fact, I think a lot... Uh, there's a lot more these days than than back then. Well, here,
1: yeah, because it just never happened before.
2: No, right? I think in in Europe as well. I mean, those were, uh, back then it was something that, you know, was kind of strange to everybody. First of all, that chefs would be getting together in large numbers and sharing their recipes, sharing their new ideas rather than hoarding them uh, and then collaborating with people who had more technical knowledge than they did to, to figure things out. That's uh, it's. There's a lot of that everywhere now.
1: Right. I mean, the classic one in the English-speaking world that you we always used to talk about in classes was the uh, the Heston one. You want to talk about that for a sec? Uh,
2: sure. Heston uh, has collaborated with people at a half dozen different universities in the UK. Uh, the the collaboration that I think makes the most difference to most cooks is the one he did uh, with. Donald Matram at Reading University. this is in the like two thousand and five two thousand and six where uh, Heston was preparing tomatoes in the kitchen uh, in the standard uh, classical French way of peeling the tomatoes, scooping out the seeds, and then chopping the the wall of the tomato for some beautiful uh, sort of uh, garnish. And he was popping bits of tomato in his mouth as he was doing this, and noticed that the seeds seemed to have way more flavor than the rest of the tomato and so he called up his friend uh, Matram at Reading and asked him, "Was it true that there was more he thought uh, umami and acidity in the in the jelly around the seeds?" And Mottram looked at the literature, couldn't find anyone had done a study of this, and so he and Heston collaborated on a study. And they found that uh, not only was there a difference in the concentration of these things in, uh, in and around the seeds, but that it was a huge difference. It was like three or, full, three or four fold difference in. Uh, glutamate and uh, organic acids, and so on. So, the intensity of flavor in a tomato comes from the stuff that in many cuisines you just kind of toss out or put in a stock or something like that and don't even make use of.
1: Specifically, the French. You used to make fun of it. Well, I would force you to make fun of the French when we were at the French Culinary Institute. We were talking about
2: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, kind of fun, too, to remember uh, back in the day when Ferran Adria was coming up with a new dish every six hours. Uh, a couple of them were actually based on taking, scooping the seeds out of the inside of a tomato and just serving them all by themselves, and they were delicious.
1: And then s- selling the outside to the French?
2: <laughs> right.
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> For using some sort of conca... say concassé. Right? <laughs> is that the word? Uh, oui. Oui, Concasse. Con- c- 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 uh, hey, uh, before I uh, go into this, I'll ask whether you like uh, have any... Uh, do you know anything about uh, thermophilic bacteria and their possible survival inside of sous-vide bags? Have you heard anything about this? Uh, no. No, I, have a, I had someone a while ago who wrote in about their bags inflating after a fairly long period of time when it should have already... Um everything should have been killed. And I, no. I ascribed mm-hmm. it to, uh, there was sauce on the inside of the bag that didn't make it to temperature in time. But then he's like, well, why did it blow up after a long period? I don't know. I wonder whether there's ever been a case of like a thermophilic thing surviving and causing gas inside of a bag.
2: Well, how how long after? I mean... like
1: Hours after being put into the bath. Like, uh-huh. I think on like day, like on day two.
2: Uh-huh. Well, I mean, there are uh, spores that survive temperatures like sous vide temperatures and are actually activated by temperatures like that.
1: Well, but when it, it, in other words, uh, while the bag was still cooking, it, it, it blew up.
2: While it was cooking?
1: Like a day later, like 24 hours, imagine 24 hours into the cook process, the bag just ah. inflates. Ah, okay. This is a, you know, someone named Michael have written in this, but I still, uh, every once in a while I think about it and I can't figure it out because... Air in bones or veg will come out in the first couple of hours after it heats up. Mm -hmm. Usually, Mm -hmm. you know, within five or six hours, if you have a pocket on the inside that is being too protected from the heat such that you can generate stuff, then that'll create gas. That gas pocket will stay at a temperature that doesn't kill the bacteria because it'll be like, you know, five, six degrees below. Mm -hmm. It'll stay Mm -hmm. around 50. You'll incubate bacteria and you'll go, but not like 24 hours later. Yeah. Something weird. Huh. Something weird's going on all right, okay. so listen, uh, like right in a minute we're going to end uh, yep. our extended, but I have one more that I think would be good to end on, and you know, if you don't want to talk are you do you, are you willing to talk about your your looking into the uh, burnt almond uh and cyanide, or are you not willing to talk about it? Sure. Sure. All right, so we'll do this real quick, because I think this is a hyper-interesting story, and one that just shows how badass uh, Harold McGee is about thinking about stuff that we have taken for granted for not just our lives, but for the lives of everyone back to our great-grandparents. Uh, Caleb Sexton wrote in, because uh, he sent us those, uh, those apricots. You know the super high bricks apricots they have now in California? Uh, no. Yeah, no. I forgot the name of it. I'll, I'll get it for you. They're like mega-high-20s, like 20s, high-20s bricks
2: hmm. on the fresh fruit. And uh, what kind of acidity?
1: Not enough acidity in my in my estimation. Yeah. However, if you just I what I did was I sprinkled some uh, some acid on them and they were like what you know. But you know how I am. Anyways, uh, but Stas liked them low acidity. But that's not the point. So he said I have these pits now and I want to use them the apricot kernels. And he said should I be worried about uh, amygdalin? And then he said uh, well you know my, my impression is that the sweeter the I don't know whether he meant the sweeter the apricots or the sweeter the kernels themselves. The less amygdalin is there and the less kind of worry. And it immediately made me think well you'll have an answer for that because we. Talked about this before, but that also you might talk about your recent investigations into the smell of cyanide.
2: Right. So the the standard description of the smell of cyanide is like bitter almonds, which, uh, like like almond extract, uh, which uh, just seems weird because if you look at the structure of hydrogen cyanide, HCN, that's all there is to it, and then you look at the the aroma compound that gives us the smell of bitter almonds, which is benzaldehyde, which is a, a carbon six carbon ring they 're just so different. How can they end up giving you the same uh, sensory uh, perception? Uh, I, I was just curious uh, I thought it was odd, and so I went hunting in the literature and it turns out that there's really not that good a uh, an evidentiary trail to indicate that that 's the case that in fact they do smell the same, uh, and there are several uh, sources, one of them in perfumery, one a a forensics text from around the turn of the century, which was talking about how can you tell if there's a suicide, how can you tell whether the person died? If it's uh, by cyanide, then you would get this telltale uh, odor, except that this guy says that's the standard uh, uh, explanation and uh, what you're looking for. But in fact, in his experience, uh, cyanide doesn't leave that kind of smell. Uh, And this perfumist says that uh, the smell of uh, cyanide is not the same as uh, uh, benzaldehyde. So I, I know a couple of scientists who have used it, uh, uh, cyanide as a, a reagent in their research, and I want to get to them and see uh, either whether they can give me their feeling uh, about this and uh, whether maybe I might take a sniff, a wow. carefully controlled sniff wow. for myself. Nice wow! Wow! With some, uh, they can counteract it, right? Or no? If they get you right away. Uh. That's a good question. I should probably check that out before I. <laughs> uh, I would definitely experiment. check
1: that because yeah. we, someday we would love to have you back on Cooking <laughs> Issues. So I, I don't want to read in the uh, I don't want to read in the papers that you you know that the curious cook was killed by his curiosity. That would not be <laughs> right. that would not be pleasant. And that has been our extended fifteen minutes of Cooking Issues with Harold McGee.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.